The Democratic Party's path forward. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. There has been a fascinating discussion and debate within the Democratic Party for months, which has intensified, of course, with the power that Senator Joe Manchin has had in the US Senate. And that is, should Democrats to be successful legislatively, politically move more towards the center, or should they move more towards progressives and the left? Well, somebody who's got a pretty strong opinion on that joins us today. Brittany Ramos de Barros, she is a progressive candidate in the Democratic primary for New York's 11th congressional district. She will face off against Max Rose, who is more of a centrist Democrat in the primary in June. And then the winner will take on a woman by the name of Nicole Maliotakis. She is a Trumpster through and through, and that will be in the general election. Uh, Brittany, thanks for joining us. First of all, uh, if I understand it correctly, you campaigned on behalf of uh, Max Rose's behalf in 2018. So why take him on now? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I I'm an organizer and I'm, you know, a person who has always been really invested in making sure that everyday people and everyday families are best positioned um, to get their needs met. And the reality is, is I knocked doors as a volunteer um, for Max in 2018 because we had another Trump Republican uh, representing us at that point and we needed to get him out. He was also the DA who, you know, really refused to prosecute Eric Garner's murderers. There, you know, there were just a lot of reasons why he, in my opinion and in the opinion of many here, was, was not really meeting our needs. And so even though I had critiques of Max Rose then I you know for me it's always about practical solutions for our communities and that's also why I'm running now um, at the end of the day what I've seen over and over is that you know many people talk about this as a spectrum of left right and center but explain to me <laughs> what is the center position on people going hungry? <laughs> in our district. Explain to me what is the center position on people either being kicked out of their homes because they're too poor in these layered crises that we're facing to stay in them, or they don't even have gas for months like many of the families here have. So for me, this is really about fighting for the people. And I think that that's really a fight of top versus bottom. It's the 1% and corporations versus the rest of us. And that's what- It also seems like a fight, at least according to people on the right, that it's a question of, well, should the government be solving these issues or should it be left to you know private charities and private enterprise to sort of tackle some of these problems? It would seem like um, that Max is a little bit more towards, well, maybe the government should not be as ambitious as you would like it to be. Is that a fair assessment? You know, I don't know. There hasn't, it's it's difficult for me to understand his positioning, to be honest, because that's not something that I think he has really prioritized campaigning on. Um, so there are a lot of places where I'm really not sure what his his ideological beliefs are. And what I know is that, you know, I he's talked about as a centrist. Okay. Um, he also ran multiple pro-Trump ads in his in his attempt to pander to that Trumpism in order to to get elected and still lost as an incumbent with a fundraising advantage. And so, you know, I'm really not here to talk about 
him uh, and and the strategies that have failed us in the past, other than to say that we have to do something different, right? And I think that doing something different means really understanding why people have the concerns that they do. People here are concerned about the role of the government and for good reason. Many of them feel that both parties have let them down for a really long time and have not really been fighting for them. And that's why I say this isn't really about left versus right or red versus blue for me. This is about how do we deliver on the practical things that everyday people need. And I think that government, you know, the role of the government makes the question kind of uh, scary and big and inaccessible. But what we're really talking about is how do we want our collective resources to be spent? That's what our tax dollars are, right? That's what our elected officials are, is people responsible for stewarding stewarding our collective resources. And I want them spent on housing, education, addressing climate crisis, good jobs, infrastructure, right? And I think that that's what most people want. Well, let's take a couple of those issues because as Staten Island, the 11th Congressional District has long been held for many, many years by Republicans, moderate Republicans like the Molinares, more far right Republicans like the person who holds it now. But given the, the demographics of the district and that it has been a traditionally sort of moderate Republican kind of congressional district, make the case why should you know moderate Republicans, independent voters, people who don't identify with either party, why should they care about, for example, climate change or about something that you describe as care, not criminalization in terms of people who are caught with you know drug offenses or whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the case I actually have to make is why they should care. They already care, you know? I mean, we have had amazing organizers and families and mothers and and so forth in our district advocating for investment in care in our district for a really long time. We are some of the most intensely impacted by the overdose crisis in New York City, and yet we are losing beds in um in rehabilitative facilities rather than gaining them, right? We don't have we have some of the harshest health outcomes in the city, including some of the highest COVID case rates, and we don't have a single public hospital here. And you know, like most of the country, many, many, many families are dealing with or facing, um, you know, going bankrupt over medical uh, over medical bills in one of the wealthiest cities on the face of the planet. Right? There's no reason for that 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 everybody doesn't have a basic floor for medical care that they can afford that they have access to. Right? And so I think that these things are already actually popular in our district. The thing that we have to overcome is that many people are checked out. They've lost faith in politicians, in parties, in the government because they've been so let down for so long. They've heard promise after promise and just not seen people really deliver. Which is why I think that someone like me, people came to and asked me to run because I have a history. You know, when I was an army officer, I stood up, I risked my career, I risked risked my freedom to call out the corruption that I was seeing both within the military and in DC that was affecting not just the military and veterans, but people overseas and our communities right here at home, right? And I was gonna ask you about, I was gonna ask you about your military background because it does make for, uh, make your story even sort of more interesting. What was it that turned you against, uh, for example, the Afghanistan war? I mean, you were, you know, on duty, you were seeing things. Was there a particular moment or realization and what prompted it? 
Yeah, I think it was a lot of things. You know, I went there as a true believer. I was a platoon leader responsible for 40 lives. I really thought that I was going to fight for to protect innocent Afghan people from the bad guys, right? And that I would um, fight for democracy and freedom. And yet what I saw there was that we were so obviously adding to the violence and doing so much more harm than good. Um, you know, and I saw the way that corporations were running the show. And one example of that is, you know, when I was a maintenance platoon. Leader, I will never forget sitting in a combat zone, right? Tasked with this responsibility, supposedly uh, to uphold our national security there and at home as a commissioned officer. And I had an entire platoon of mechanics who had the knowledge to fix deadlined vehicles that uh, rendered one of our platoons that was a critical platoon non mission capable and had all the equipment to do it. And they were legally barred from making that platoon functional again, because there were corporate contracts that said only corporate mechanics could work on those vehicles. And you know, I became, I came home confused and disillusioned. I saw corporate contractors there making hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then you had active duty military troops on food stamps. There are almost 40,000 plus estimated active duty military on food stamps. And so that's why it's so important to me to talk about the fact that half that massive military budget is passed under the guise of supporting the troops and supporting national security. And yet half of it goes to these corporations that are just making bank. When that money could be put back into canceling student debt, into healthcare, and things that we know actually make us safe and secure. And so, you know, for me, that experience was incredibly powerful. I also saw that, you know, the military has a particular purpose. It is meant to leverage violence, to maximize violence as effectively and efficiently as possible to serve that particular end and function, right? And we should stop kind of kidding ourselves about the role of the of, of the military to be a nation builder, a democracy builder, right? All of those things. And I saw that um, you can't just take an institution meant to do violence and tweak it to make it a peacekeeping organization, right? And I think that when you see politicians like my opponent, Max Rose, calling for the National Guard to be called to the ports or calling for the National Guard to be mobilized to our hospitals, you really see the cost of the fact that we have only invested in that institution in terms of federal jobs programs and, and, and other kinds of initiatives. And we really need to invest in other things that also have national security impacts and impacts on the overall wellness of our communities here. And of course, it's a responsibility of Congress to try to figure out what to prioritize. Let's just suppose you beat Max Rose for the Democratic primary in June, and then you beat Miss Malliotakis, Nicole Malliotakis in the general election in November. And let's suppose that Democrats, you're part of the reason Democrats are able to hold control of the US House. What would you say to Nancy Pelosi if she is still the speaker in terms of what the priorities for the Democratic caucus should be? Yeah, I mean, I think that the priorities need to be democracy and campaign finance reform. We're seeing really concerning erosions of our basic democratic rights and rights to the vote um, that are very concerning and need to be addressed immediately. We also need um, real reforms to the way that campaign finance works to make it more accessible to working class people like me, right? I'm already behind on my personal credit card because I'm, you know, a paycheck to paycheck person. I have student loans myself. My husband does, and um, and it, you know, it's in, you can't take a, a a salary or a stipend when you're running at this point in the campaign, and that's incredibly concerning. There's no matching, right? But beyond that, I think that those things open the door for us to pass things like a Green New Deal, Medicare for all, canceling student debt, and investing in a career, yeah, a cradle yeah. to career pipeline of education investment and 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 investment in our families. Brittany Ramos, to borrow. 
She is a Democratic candidate for New York's 11th congressional district. The primary is in June, the general election would be in November. Brittany, thanks for joining us and good luck to you. Thank you so much, David. Thank you everyone and happy holidays. Is there a right to rescue animals? Hello, everybody, welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. The right to rescue animals is becoming more of an issue in a lot of legal circles and some political circles because of a case that has been developing in North Carolina. Wayne Shong, who is an animal rights activist, was convicted by a jury of larceny and breaking and entering for rescuing a goat that was sick with pneumonia at a meat farm. Uh, Wayne joins us now. Wayne, the, the jury just returned its verdict in early December. Tell me about the case. Um, and what your grounds for appeal might be. Well, David, we, we got a call from a local animal rescue called Brother Wolf Animal Rescue, which is one of the most prominent dog and cat rescue organizations in Western North Carolina about cruelty calls they're receiving from farms and slaughterhouses. They didn't really know what to do with it. And my background as an investigator and attorney gave me the experience and I think necessary knowledge to try and address the situation. So we looked into the conditions at one particular goat meat ranch found a couple extremely ill sick baby goats, took them directly to the same rescue that called us in to help out with the animal cruelty cases. And the goats are alive today because of the care they received at this rescue. The result of this was the industry came out very strongly against the rescue, didn't like the fact that we documented what we were doing. And really to me, this case is as much about the first amendment as animal welfare, because I think the primary reason we're being punished is because we published on Facebook Live everything we did, which is not typical of someone who's stealing something a company. And that gets to this whole sort of strategy, right? In animal rights activism now, something known as open rescue, where you really, you identify who you are and sort of what you're doing. And as you mentioned, it was successful the first time around, but then you go back to another, I guess, meat farm and try to rescue the goat. And that's where you get prosecuted for an event that happened in 2018. Uh, what happened during the trial? The trial was, was fascinating because it showed kind of the extensive efforts the government was gonna make to be pretty, pretty much gag us and talking about what we did and why we did what we did. You know, On the first day of trial, the prosecution filed a motion saying that we couldn't talk about the condition the goats were in. And, and the prosecutor literally said that this is a case no different than uh, the stealing of a chair or a garbage can. And I made the point in court that there's a difference between a chair and a dog, uh, a trash can and a goat. And I think most people from just a common sense moral perspective, understand that. <laughs> you kick a chair, the chair doesn't cry, you kick a baby goat, they will. And it's why I think most people, even in North Carolina and even rural conservative counties, if we were able to actually tell the story of why we did what we did, probably would have supported taking this goat to the vet. So you had to go in front of a jury and try to explain that you were justified in taking the goat without explaining what, without being able to explain what condition the goat was in? Yeah, I uh, was cut off in my opening statement mid-sentence. The jury had to leave the room. We had a veterinary expert who was trying to testify. She was cut off. We weren't allowed to talk at all about the animals. And I think it's because these industries, they know that when people actually hear about the mistreatment of animals, they are affected by it. They're hurt by it. They empathize with animals. I mean, on Facebook, the, the company recently released that two out of the six biggest platforms on Facebook are animal rescue platforms because people love animals. They don't want to see baby animals of any type starving or sick or mistreated in any way. So the jury has to make a very narrow ruling and they find that yes, you did, you know, you admitted you went in and you, you took this thing and they convicted you of, of larceny and, and breaking and entering without them understanding why you did it. Um, what are the constitutional grounds that you think you might have a chance on in terms of the appeal? 
Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, every defendant has a right to present a defense. And we weren't really given that right in this trial. And, you know, I think that when an appellate court sees that not just the, the defenses we wanted to bring, we wanted to bring a defense called necessity, basically arguing that there's an injured human being or animal. And it's kind of like the dog in a hot car situation. You're entitled to engage in more minor lawbreaking activity to save a life or to, to save the health and well being of an animal in need. But more generally, I think that. The, the jury had a right to just hear the story. You know, there's a lot of case law suggesting and holding that when a defendant is facing a criminal charge, at a minimum, the defendant has a right to tell their story, explain who they are, why they did what they did. And usually it's the prosecution that is trying to introduce evidence and the defense trying to gag evidence. And in this case, those roles were reversed because I think the prosecution understood that if the jury knew more about my background, why I did what we did, they would have been sympathetic. Now you are facing at what it's it's seven years. You could be sentenced to prison if if you don't win on appeal. There is this argument uh, that's been sort of surfaced and something of a debate within the animal rights community and a lot of activists in general about whether there should be this sort of open rescue identity because the danger is is that if you publicly identify yourself before you do something, you do make it easier to be arrested. If you get arrested and you're convicted and the conviction is upheld, well, you're an activist who would therefore be taken away from future potential rescues had you not identified yourself. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, I, I don't fault anyone for wanting to remain anonymous, whether we're talking about whistleblowers, activists, protesters, and a lot of people don't want to be in the media. They don't want to be on social media for, I think, quite reasonable basis. I mean, there's massive over surveillance of activism and even ordinary people in this country. Having said that, you know my my reading of history is that the most powerful activism has always been transparent and open. And we want to be as far from the industry as possible. The industry is passing ag gag laws, trying to keep everyone in the dark about how food is made. We want to be open and transparent about everything we do. And and I think that's part of the reason the industry sees this as such a threat because they see that when the public sees we're acting with openness, transparency, trying to act with as much integrity as possible. They trust what we're saying. <laughs> they see that we're not trying to hide anything, even our own identities. We face criminal charges in these rural conservative counties, and that gives us moral power that the industry doesn't have. Have the conditions for animals, uh, whether they're in slaughterhouses or headed to you know, meat farms or whatnot, have they been getting better or have they been getting worse over the last several years? You know, it's funny, there's a lot of marketing that would make you think that things have gotten better. But I think Steven Pinker actually makes this point in one of his recent books that while the human condition has improved a lot and, and the state of the world has gotten a lot better for impoverished peoples, marginalized communities in many ways, animals are a pretty, pretty big exception to that. Um, the growth in meat consumption is part of that, but, but also frankly, just the ecological impacts of the meat that's already being produced. We're losing land at a rate that is totally unsustainable. And because of that, we have to cram more and more animals into a smaller amount of space. And unfortunately, because the USDA pretty much governs all of the marketing regulations on food. And because the USDA has been completely captured by the industry, there isn't really anyone watching these companies when they market their products as free range. So my sense is most of the efforts that have been made, while a lot of them are important symbolic efforts, I'm supportive of the measures that Californians have taken over the last 10 years to improve the plight of farm animals. The reality is animals are probably in a worse state today than they've ever been in human history. And you just said free range, and I thought you just said that there's really nobody monitoring whether something really is a free range chicken or goat or cow or whatnot. Uh, is that still the case? I mean, is that something that still exists even within the Biden administration's USDA? That's any company can label their product as a free range chicken, but they don't have to prove it. Yeah, pretty much, um, there was a there was a good piece on Vox recently 
by Jessica Scott Reed on this question. But the, the, the reality is, even if something's marketed as free range or organic, and technically under the federal organic program, animals are supposed to have access to the outdoors. Even if a company is complying with the law, oftentimes compliance is as simple as putting a tiny little platform outside of a massive 25,000 chicken factory farm, letting three chickens out maybe once a month. And none of the other chickens ever see the outside, ever see the sun before they're slaughtered. And the, the eggs are still being marketed as free range, organic, or cage-free. So the, the reality is, ultimately, as long as animals are treated as commodities, there's no animal who can call up the USDA or the local authorities and say, hey, they never let me outside. They don't have this sort of power. And we have to ask ourselves, when it comes to these incredibly vulnerable beings who've been bred to be gentle, been bred to be fond of human beings, do we really believe in commercializing these individual beings' lives to the point that billions upon billions of them are subjected to conditions that, frankly, most of us, when we look at them, can't even stomach to see it. Wayne, how long ago did you get involved in animal rights activism? And was there a particular event or something that triggered it? Yeah, I mean, I consider myself an animal advocate, certainly an animal lover, like most Americans my entire life. But the, the vivid experience I had was when I was a kid at the age of eight, I went back to China for the first time and I saw an animal that we don't typically see as a food animal here in the United States, a dog um, in a cage being prepared for slaughter. And she looked exactly like my dog. And that was the beginning of this journey. Um, and you, you've been an attorney in addition to the, the animal rights activism. Um, how, how receptive generally, I mean, putting aside your case in North Carolina, but uh, generally, um, how have the courts been in terms of this idea that an animal is a sentient, sentient uh, being, that it's not like a chair, it's not like an object? Uh, how has yeah. that gone down in courts and in legal circles over the last several years? I think we're making absolutely astounding progress to the point that and the next generation will be the generation I think that, that will be remembered as the generation that embraced the idea that all the living beings of this earth, not just human beings, not just a particular class of human beings, but all living creatures that can feel pain deserve legal protections. And I'll just give you two examples. One is, you know, in, in, in New York, the Court of Appeals, the highest state court, recently ruled that Happy the Elephant um, was entitled to a habeas corpus proceeding. A habeas corpus proceeding, lawyers may know from Guantanamo and other cases, is a proceeding you bring on behalf of a person who's been unlawfully detained. And the Court of Appeals is gonna hear an argument as to whether an elephant held in captivity should be considered a person who's been unlawfully detained. But, but second, I wanna just say that in California, we've reached the point that not only are we imposing regulations on mistreatment of animals in the food system, but we outright ban the production and sale of fur on the grounds that we realized after seeing what was happening to these animals that they're not just commodities, they're not just coats for, for wealthy people to wear luxurious garments, but they're animals, just like our dogs and cats. And the fur industry was a very salient example because oftentimes dogs are inadvertently used in fur because so much of it is produced in China. Well, Wayne, uh, it is a pleasure having you on. Wayne Shung, he's an attorney and co-founder of the Direct Action Everywhere. Uh, good luck in the appeals and your trial in North Carolina, and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for the opportunity, David. You got it. On behalf of Marissa Matthews, John Skipvalaco, Asher Cofield, and the entire team at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.